and one of the reasons that I, one of the things I'm looking forward to when we get to heaven is uh, a stronger voice that's on, that doesn't crack like mine and it's, has better pitch than mine. To be able to praise God in eternity in heaven, won't that be amazing and wonderful to be there? Well, this, this evening, uh, the kids should have a handout to follow along with. I want to talk about evidences for the existence of God. Um, I'm going to take a lot of this material from some material that my dad put together on the subject. I've shared that with some of you. We just got done studying with our kids at home. I know some of you are studying this as well. I thought it would be good for us together to look at reasons why we believe God exists. Belief in God is under attack in our society. Uh, Our educational system is actively trying to undermine faith and belief in God. To search the universe to find an explanation for the origin of our universe, an explanation that does not include God. That's motivating a lot of the space exploration and why we want to go here and there. People are looking for evidence that shows that God doesn't exist, I believe. The Internet is full of people proclaiming very definitively that God does not exist. Atheists are displayed prominently in the media as being the authority and the intelligent, enlightened ones. And it's working. More and more people are professing that they do not believe in God. Even Christians are walking away from the faith and claiming that they now are atheists. It's important for us to look at reasons why we believe God exists. The evidence is abundant that God exists. And tonight, let's look at that. To be reminded of some things that we already know, and be reassured in our faith that God does exist. But before we get into this study, we have to admit and acknowledge that we can't uh, experience God with our five senses, touch, taste, smell, hearing, and sight. We can't experience God that way. And so that limits some of the proof that we will have. But it is no different than many of the other things that we believe that we can't experience with our five five senses. Do you believe George Washington existed? You can't experience George Washington with any of your senses. Do you believe that he existed? Do you believe that some humans built this room that we're in tonight? We have no way to experience those those humans who they were, but we believe that they built this room. And so it is with God. We're not going to be able to experience him with our five five senses. We're not going to be able to go into some type of laboratory and reproduce sin or show that here's the definitive proof that God exists. I want to tell you, we have a lot of evidence, and we can conclude definitively that God does exist based upon this evidence. The first is cause and effect. Cause and effect. Every effect demands a cause. With that understanding in mind that no one disputes that uh, effect demands a cause, let's examine our universe. How do we get our universe? Where did it come from? There are three potential explanations. The first explanation is that the universe is, is eternal, that there has always been a universe, that this place that we experience has always forever been here. That's one example or one explanation. The second explanation is that this universe created itself, that the universe just made itself. And all that we have here today is the result of the universe deciding that it wanted to be a universe and it made itself by some force that was out. 
Third explanation is that the universe was created. Created by some force that was outside of the universe and superior to the universe. Those are the three options that you have. It's always existed, it created itself, or it was created by someone or something. Which one of those is plausible? Which one of those works? Has the universe always been here? Is the universe eternal? No, the answer to that scientifically is that the universe could not be eternal. That matter is not eternal. Dr. Robert Jastrow said this, As the result of the most recent discoveries, we say to a fair degree of confidence that our universe has not existed forever, that it began abruptly, without apparent cause, in a blinding event that defies scientific explanation. He says the universe is not eternal, that it started at a point in time. It's interesting that Dr. Robert Jastrow is not a Christian. He's an atheist, or he was until the time of his death, apparently. In Christianity Today, in an interview, he went on and said this, Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner, act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as the product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. He says the astronomers have looked and looked and looked, and the harder they look, the more they find that our universe had a point in which it was created, which it began. It's not eternal, in other words. He also wrote this. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. He says, the the astronomer, has, and the scientists have been trying to figure this out, and they finally get to the point where they can figure it out, and they find out the people who believed in God were right all along. Matter is not eternal. There are lots of evidences that we can look at in the world around us to conclude that matter is not and cannot be eternal. One of those things that we can look at is radioactive elements. You know that a radioactive element has a half-life. The half-life of a radioactive element is when there is half as much of the original element as there was when you started. And so, let's say you had 100 grams of whatever radioactive element you want to uh, look at, and you know it's half-life, and given the half-life of whatever element that is, let's say it's 100 years, you start out with 100 grams, after 100 years you'll have 50 grams. After another 100 years, you have 25 grams. And I'm going to stop there because I don't want you to know that I don't know how to do much math. If I keep doing the division, I might get get it wrong. But the half-life of a radioactive element. Dr. James Bales said this, There are in nature radioactive clocks, so to speak, such as thorium and uranium. One half of each mass of these materials decomposes ever so many, every such radioactive elements still exist and are still disintegrating. 
They have not been disintegrating forever since in an, in an eternity they would have already decomposed. These elements are decomposing at a known rate. And if this had been going on for eternity, there wouldn't be any more radioactive elements at all. But he says the fact that the radioactive elements still exist proves that it couldn't have been going on forever. Do you see that? Here's another one. British astronomer Fred Hoyle was driven to believe in continuous creation or creation of matter out of nothing, also known as the steady state theory, by evidence similar to that for entropy. You must believe in some kind of creation, he argues, because the only alternative to it would be to say that the material of the universe is infinitely old, a thesis impossible to hold when one looks at the problem of hydrogen in the universe. If the universe were infinitely old, there would be no hydrogen left because hydrogen is being steadily converted into helium through the universe, and this con conversion is a one-way process. That is, hydrogen can't be produced in any appreciable quantity through the breakdown of other elements. If matter were in infinitely old, the universe couldn't consist chiefly of hydrogen as it does. Hydrogen is breaking down to helium. And once it breaks down to helium, you, you don't have that hydrogen anymore, and you can't create it anymore, practically, he says. And so if the world were infinitely old, if the universe had existed forever, all of that hydrogen would have now been changed into helium. And yet, when we look at the universe, we have very little helium. In fact, in the news in the recent past, there's been some concern that we might not have enough helium for helium balloons anymore. Did you know that? Kids, you might not have those balloons at your party for long because we're running out of helium. But if the world has existed forever, we'd have a lot of helium and almost no hydrogen. But it's exactly the opposite, showing that the universe has not existed forever. This article mentions also entropy. You understand that energy is neither created nor destroyed. And that's a major problem for those who don't believe in God. Because we have a world full of energy. The energy is neither created nor destroyed. How do we get all of this energy? The kids and I were watching a YouTube video of a guy explaining scientific processes. And he was talking about in physical reactions, you don't get as much energy out of something as you put into it, that things are running down. And he said, that is, of course, the universe is an exception to that because at some point the universe created energy. He doesn't know how it happened. He doesn't believe in God. But if you believe in God, you understand how do we get all this energy it came from God. So is the universe eternal? No, it's not eternal. Remember, we're looking at the cause and effect. What caused this? Has the universe always existed? No, it couldn't exist. Scientific principles show us it's impossible that the universe is eternal. Did the universe create itself? No, we know that's not true. Nothing comes from nothing. No scientific principle will allow the universe to create itself. The universe didn't create itself. Then the only alternative that works is that it was created by someone or something external to the universe, superior to it, and different than the universe. That obviously is God. Notice what the Bible says about this. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4. Would you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4? The Bible says very clearly that God created the universe. It's the only explanation that worked. 
that works. And what we've looked at in, in eliminating possibilities, it couldn't be internal. It couldn't have created itself. Science itself rules out those two alternatives. The only logical alternative is it was created by God. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. There's the explanation that works. There's the explanation that works within science, that God created the world. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You can look at the world around us, and you can know that it had to be created by God. And one of the other ways you can tell that, the, that God must exist, evidence for His existence, is the principle of design demands a designer. When we see something that exhibits design, we know someone had to design it. I look around at people with different style of clothing on tonight. You know, there was someone who designed that clothing someone who knew how to put fabric together in certain ways to make it work. There's evident design there. Look at the chairs that you're sitting on. There are features and functions of those chairs that didn't just happen. They were designed by someone. And when we look at the world around us and we see the design that is apparent everywhere we look, as, as intricate as you want to look or zoom out as far as you want to zoom out, Everywhere around us we see design, and that demands that there be a designer. Look at the stars. Look at the planets. Look how they move around in orbit in, in perfect harmony. That demands a designer. David read for Psalm 19, 1-6, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Design demands a designer. That's what, that's what the psalmist is saying. We see the design around us, and we know there must be a God who designed it. What about our bodies? What about our human bodies, how they work together? Every organ working together, and the body is able to accomplish incredible feats. And the body is able to recreate itself when it's injured and fix itself. How did that happen? Was it by chance? Was there some type of lightning strike? in a, some type of pool of organic matter that created a life form, and it, that life form just happened to evolve into the order and design that we see? Psalm 139, verse 14. Psalm 139, verse 14. The psalmist says, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. We see design everywhere. I have some bees out in, the, in my yard in some boxes, and the Pharisees are about to get some bees in their yard. And every time that you open up those bees and you see what they're doing inside, that little creature that no one ever taught what to do, no one ever explained to that bee how to get nectar and turn it into honey, and yet it knows how to do that. And not only one bee, but 
thousands of bees working together in a colony with organization and structure. Things going on in that hive that men don't even understand yet. You know, they say a bee, I can think, can fly two miles to get to nectar. And those bees communicate with each other. When a bee finds a good source of nectar, it comes back and it communicates to the other bees. It says, you fly this direction, you fly this long, and you'll find the good, the good nectar. Ferris is in the left. How did it happen? I believe uh, the Pharisees and the Lavenderas went and heard a, uh, a presentation about DNA, about how the genetic code teaches the cell what to do and how to reproduce. How did that happen? Design demands a designer. It has been said like this. If, if the world created out of an explosion, and out of an explosion we got all of this order, that's as ridiculous as saying that a tornado could go through a Lowe's lumberyard and build a neighborhood. Right? An explosion could produce all of this design and this order. That's ridiculous. Design demands a designer. And we see it everywhere we look. Look down as small as you can go with a microscope or look out as far as you can look with a telescope. Look high or low, you're going to see evidence of design that demands a designer. I'm going to tell you the moral nature of man also shows that there must be a God. Men have in them a sense of right and wrong. It doesn't matter if they're religious or if they're not. People have a sense of their rights, of what's right and what's wrong. Even criminals demand justice in the legal system, don't they? They want a fair trial. Mankind has a moral nature, a sense of what is right and what is wrong. Animals do not possess this characteristic. If the evolutionist and the atheist is correct, how did man mankind get the sense of morality, of what's right and what's wrong? Evolution doesn't produce this. Evolution says might makes right. That survival of the fittest means if I like your car better than mine and it'll get me from point A to be point B better than mine, I'll steal your car. That's what evolution would say. That's what survival of the fittest would say. Survival of the fittest would say, if you're weak and you're sickly and I see that you have something I want, I'll take it because it'll help me. It'll help the advance the, the, the race. That's what evolution says. How do we get this moral sense if God is not in the equation? In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we see that the Gentiles have even this idea of what's right and what's wrong in Revelation, Romans chapter 2, beginning verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. Mankind has a moral nature. How do we get that if there's not a God who gave us that moral nature? And furthermore, we see uh, man's worshiping nature, his man's inclination to worship throughout the world. Although in different forms, men have a desire to worship. Where did they get that? 
if not from God. All over the world, all over the universe, we see evidence of God. We see this in the nature, in the world that God created. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. The evidence is abundant as we look at the world around us. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. The Bible says you ought to be able to look at the world around us. You ought to be able to see the amazing uh, universe that God has created and know that there's a God. Romans 1 verse 20 says that. Acts 14 verses 15 and through 17 say, the same, say a similar thing. Romans 14, or sorry, Acts 14, beginning of verse 15. Acts 14, beginning of verse 15. And saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are all also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. And he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. God has left men throughout time. Even in absence of the revealed word, he's left evidence of himself in nature. He's left proof, and we can see that. We don't need the Bible. We don't need the Bible to know that there must be a God. We should be able to look to the world around us and see that there is one. And then finally, Acts 17, beginning of verse 22. Acts 17, beginning of verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar to this, with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from, the, from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his, also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead." Mankind can tell by looking at the world around us. Those in Athens knew there must be a God. It is obvious from the world that we look at that there must be a God. I want to tell you there are other proofs that uh, are somewhat different than looking just at the natural world. If we have other proofs that God must exist, and that is the Bible. If the Bible is an inspired book, then that demands there must be a God who inspired it. And so all of the proofs that we have for the inspiration of the God are also proofs that God, uh, inspiration of the Bible, all the, it's, uh, the proofs that we have for the inspiration of the Bible are actually proofs that there's a God. 
And so we look at the nature and the characteristic of the Bible. We look at the fulfilled prophecies. If the, if the Bible can, contains just one fulfilled prophecy, then there must be a God, right? How else would the writers have known? If the Bible contains one fulfilled prophecy, there must be a God. Yet we know the Bible contains hundreds, hundreds of fulfilled prophecies just about Jesus himself. Is there a God? We have a book that has hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled. There must be a God. How else could we get this book? If the Bible is inerrant, yet it was written by approximately 40 different writers over 1,500 years from various backgrounds, various education levels, various occupations, 1,500-year span approximately, 40 different writers, and we put all their writings together, and we have a perfectly harmonious and error. The Bible is free from the scientific misunderstandings that were prevalent at the time when it was written. There must be a God. If the Bible contains scientific facts that were unknown at the time it was written, there must be a God, and it does contain all of those. If the Bible is inspired, there must be a God. I want to tell you also, if Jesus rose from the dead, there must be a God. If the resurrection is fact, and it is, it is a historically provable fact, looking at all the evidence, we can have great faith and confidence that the resurrection occurred, and if it occurred, then there must be a God. Proof of the resurrection proves that there must be a God. In our remaining time tonight, I thought it might be interesting and helpful to look at some arguments that the atheists make because their voice is getting louder and louder in the modern day, it seems. And they have modern media and the Internet to use as a weapon, as a tool to advance their ideas and their concepts. I thought it might be good for us to look at some of the arguments they make to to support their idea that there is no God. And let's con consider the validity of their arguments and see if they hold any weight. I went out to Wikipedia, and I found a long list of arguments. And I've included most of them here. There were some that were just too lengthy and too confusing, and I left them out. But I think I've got a fair representation of some of the arguments that the atheists are making to defend the idea that there is no God. The first of those is that there's no lasting scientific evidence of God's existence. No lasting scientific evidence of God's existence has been found. Therefore, in the case of a worldview that relies solely on scientific evidence, whether or not God exists is unknown, or even God does not exist, depending on the strength of such a worldview. They're saying that we don't have any scientific evidence, scientific proof that there is a God, therefore we can't believe in God because we don't have any scientific evidence, no proof. We've shown that the science, on the other hand, demands that there must be a God. We've shown that matter is not eternal. That demands there must be a God. We've shown that design demands a designer. We believe in things that haven't been proven. The scientist believes that life came from non-life. That has never been scientifically proven. The atheist believes that the, the world that we live in came from a big bang, which has not been proven. 
And so the idea that we can't believe in God because he's not been scientifically proven is, is it's an unjust requirement because the scientists and the atheists believe in things that haven't been proven. It's not reasonable to say there's not a God because he hasn't scientifically been proven. That's not reasonable. Stephen Hawking and co-author uh, Leonard Molodov, Balanov state in their book, The Grand Design, that it is reasonable to ask who or what created the universe. But if the answer is God, then the question has merely been deflected to that of who created God. They say, listen, you can ask who created the universe. We'll let you ask that question. And if you say it's God, then we'll just ask you the question, who created God? Got you. Can't do anything with that, can you? Well, we've shown that God's existence is external to this realm. God is not bound by the same laws and principles that are present in the present world that we live in. God is external to this. That answers the question, I believe. We're not bound by the same principles that are here on earth. There are also a lot of arguments that are being made by, from incompatible divine properties. There are arguments that focus on the existence of specific concepts of God as being, uh, being irreconcilable. For instance, his omniscience, his om, om, omnipotence, and his moral perfectness, perfe perfection. And some of these arguments go like this. The omnipotence paradox suggests that the concept of an omnipotent entity is logically contradictory by considering questions such as, can God create a rock so big that he cannot move it? Or, if God is all-powerful, could God create a being more powerful than himself? Similarly, the omniscience paradox are cannot be omniscient because he would not know how to create something unknown to himself. So, we got you. There can't be a God because if there was a God who is omnipotent, he couldn't create a rock so big that he couldn't move it. And he couldn't, if he was all-powerful, could, could he create a being that was more powerful than him? So there, there couldn't be a God. Well, there's a couple answers to that. First, the hypothetical argument doesn't prove any more in this discussion than it does in religious discussions, does it? And second, just because our brains can't comprehend all, everything about God and how he works, doesn't prove that there's not a God. Just because we can't figure out how could God, if he's omnipotent, could he create a rock that he couldn't move that? Because we can't figure that out doesn't mean there's not a God. There's no contradiction here. There's no proof that God doesn't exist. Here's another argument from Wikipedia. Another argument points to the contradiction of omniscience and omnipotence, arguing that God is bound to follow whatever God foreknows himself doing. In other words, God is omniscient, so he knows everything, but he's also om omnipotent. So how could God, if he knows everything not be able to do something different than he already knows, and now we got some kind of contradiction. Do you see how silly this is getting to try and prove that God doesn't exist? This one is similar. The argument from free will contends that omniscience and the free will of humanity are incompatible 
and that any conception of God that incorporates both properties is therefore inherently contradictory. In other words, if God is omniscient, then God already knows humanity's future, contradicting, contradicting the claim of free will. If God knows everything that's going to happen, how could I have free will? Therefore, there must not be a God because we can't figure out how that would work. The fact of the matter is, God knows the future without causing it. That's how incredible God's omniscience is. He knows what's going to happen without causing it. That's how that works. There's no contradiction here. There's no proof that God doesn't exist. It goes on, and I hope I'm not boring you too much with these crazy arguments, but I think it's important to see some of the fallacy of the arguments that are used to disprove God. Uh, the anthropic argument states that if God is omniscient, omnipotent, and morally perfect, he, have, he would have created otherly, other, other morally perfect beings instead of the imperfect ones such as humans. If God is so powerful and so good, why did he create evil humans? Well, the answer to, uh, to that is God chose to create humans with free will. That's, that's how that works out. And we see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, this this argument is assuming to understand all the whys and why nots of God. Here's one. The problem of hell is the idea that eternal damnation contradicts God's omnibenevolence and omnipresence. In other words, how could a loving God send someone to hell? We've heard that before, haven't we? And then God, God's omnipresence. If hell is a place separated from God, how could God be omnipresent? I'll tell you, this argument fails to understand God's justice, doesn't it? God's justice demands that he punish sin. Romans 1, 11, verse 22 says, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise you will also be cut off. God's justice demands that he punish sin. It is not contradictory with the idea of a loving God. It goes on in this article quickly. Our omnipotent and omniscient uh, being would ha not have had any reason to act in any way specifically by creating the universe because it, it would have no needs, wants, or desires since these, are, these very concepts are subjectively human. Since the universe exists, there is a contradiction, and therefore an omnipotent God cannot exist. The question is, well, why would God even create the world? If he's omnipotent, he wouldn't have any desire, any needs. There'd be no reason to create the world. Why would he do that? Well, we don't know why God created the world, but I have an idea. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 is one place where I have an idea. God created the world, I believe, because he wanted to show his love to mankind and his grace and his mercy. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, and it goes on, God is rich in his mercy and his love towards us. And I believe that's one motivation for creating the world, but I don't know for sure. But I think God created the world so that he could show us his love. Here's one that is ridiculous. It's an argument from historical induction. The argument from historical induction concludes that since most theistic religions throughout history, for example, ancient 
Egyptian religion, ancient Greek religion, and their gods ultimately come to be regarded as untrue or incorrect, all theistic religions, including contemporary ones, are therefore most likely untrue or incorrect by induction. Real and true. This argument says, see, look at history. Look at all those religions that people used to think were real and true, and they turned out to be false and just phony. Let's just extrapolate that to every religion now and say, well, if those were untrue, then every other religion must be untrue, and every other idea about God must be untrue because those were clearly untrue. You see how illogical that is? We don't approach science this way, do we? We don't throw out every scientific theory because, well, there were a lot of theories that were false, so most every other theory must be false. We don't do that. That's illogical. It's ridiculous, these arguments. Here's one. Arguments from the poor design of the universe. Richard Carrier has argued that the universe itself seems to be very ill-designed for life because the vast majority of the space in the universe is utterly hostile to it. This is arguably unexpected on the hypothesis that the universe was designed by a god, especially a personal god. Carrier contends that such a god could have easily created a geocentric universe, ex nihilio, in the recent past, in which most of the volume of the universe is inhabitable by humans and other life forms. While a personal god might have created the kind of universe we observe, Carrier contends that this is not the kind of universe we would most likely expect to see if such a god existed. Why would God create a universe where only a small part of it is inhabitable? That doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense to this guy, so he's going to throw out the idea of God. You see how ridiculous that is? The conflicted religion argument notes that many religions give differing accounts as to what God is and what God wants, since all the contradictory accounts cannot be correct. Many, if not all, religions must be incorrect. I happen to agree with most of that argument. Most of the religions are incorrect. That doesn't mean that all are incorrect, does it? Finally, the disappointment argument claims that if when asked for there is no visible help from God, there is no reason to believe that there is a God. In other words, if I ask God for help and I, He doesn't help me, then I need to throw out the idea of God. That would have gotten Job in a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? That would have gotten a lot of faithful people throughout time in trouble. If I have to have some tangible proof of God when I ask for it. These arguments simply fail to show that there is not a God. Finally tonight, I want to tell you that atheism has consequences. If we're going to throw out the idea of God in the face of all the evidence that we've seen, if we're going to rely on these flimsy arguments that we've looked at to conclude that there is no God, then there are going to be a lot of consequences for that. First, I'm going to have to accept without the ability to prove that God does not exist. You know, it's impossible to prove that God doesn't exist. If I was going to prove that God doesn't exist, I'd have to be everywhere at the same time. And I'd have to know everything to prove that God doesn't exist. Atheists are willing to take that chance to, prove, to say that there is no God. I'm going to have to, if I'm going to say that there is no God, I'm going to have to believe in eternal matter in the face of the scientific principles that we've shown tonight that show that matter is not eternal. If 
I'm going to be an atheist. I'm going to have to believe in eternal matter. I'm going to have to accept as an atheist the idea of spontaneous generation. That is life coming from non-life, which is in direct contradiction to the law of biogenesis, which is not, has not been scientifically proven, though it has been tried countless times in laboratories with ideal and perfect conditions where the scientists were manipulating every variable that they could manipulate and trying to get exactly the right conditions in place so they could get life from non-life. And they have failed 100% of the time. But if I'm going to be an atheist, I will have to believe that life could come from non-life. That's a consequence of atheism. And the evidence is against that. If I'm going to be an atheist, I'm going to have to claim that all of the design and the order that we see in the universe around us that is undeniable, all of that design and that order came as a result of mere chance. It just happened by chance. There was an explosion and boom, we got all this order. Isn't that amazing? It's crazy is what it is. But if I'm an atheist, I'm going to have to believe that that happened. I'm going to have to believe that consciousness, including man's reasoning ability, his power of speech, his love of beauty, all of that sprang forth out of non-conscious matter. I'm going to have to believe, if I'm an atheist, that man is just a higher form of animal life, that there is no absolute standard of morality. There is no right or wrong. These are some consequences that I'm going to have to acknowledge if there is no God. There clearly is a God. The evidence is abundant. We need to be, believe in God. And if there is a God, we need to be prepared to stand before Him in judgment. You know, one of the reasons why atheists are atheists, I believe, is because of the accountability that comes with believing that there is a God. If there's a God, then I'm accountable to Him. And I'll have to stand before Him one day. There is a God. And we will have to stand before Him one day. The question is, are we ready? If you're here tonight and you're not ready, won't you make a change to that? If you're not a Christian yet, you need to become one. If you're a Christian and not living as you should, you need to change. And if there's anything we can do to help, will you let us know while we stand and while we sing?